Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. I'm Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler. And this holiday week, we have a special episode featuring legendary author Judy Bloom and director Kelly Freeman Craig of the movie version of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. The pair were interviewed in front of a live audience by Ankler CEO Janice Min on October 14th in Santa Monica at Zippy's Bookshop as the first in the Ankler's In Conversation Page to Screen event series. A special thank you to the event sponsor Lionsgate and please enjoy. Our regular podcast will return next week. Good morning, everybody. I am so excited for you all to be here. I'm Janice Mann. I'm the CEO and editor-in-chief of The Angler. First of all, thank you to Lionsgate for making this possible today. Thank you to Zibby's Bookshop, an independent bookstore, for making this possible today, too. And, oh my God, Judy Bloom is here in Santa Monica with us. Like, I am, I am dying inside a lot right now, so I will keep my cool and be a professional. Um, first, I'm going to introduce Kelly Freeman Craig. She is a screenwriter, producer, and film director. She wrote and directed the 2016 coming-of-age dramedy, The Edge of Seventeen, starring Haley Steinfeld to critical acclaim. And now she's captured another story of American girls in her 2023, this year, adaptation of Judy Bloom's classic, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. The film released earlier this year received a, this is important, a 99% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which, yes, is huge, huge. So I'm just going to say, not that we're making comparisons, it's way bigger than Barbie and Oppenheimer, Um, (laughs) meaning that critics really, really, really loved it. And critics are often not nice, as you may may have heard. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to be ridiculous and introduce Judy Bloom now, just in case, just in case some of you aren't familiar. Judy Bloom is an icon. Yes. She has sold 82 million books, written 25 novels, including Deanie, Blubber, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, Forever, and Wifey. I think probably everyone in here has read every single one of those. She was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by time this year and is recognized as a Library of Congress living legend. Congratulations. Um, Okay. Some other things I love about Judy Bloom. She has been called the most censored writer in America. That's better than being (laughs) (laughs) And she actively works against book bans, a subject I hope we can spend a little bit of time on today. And she's a producer of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, a wonderful gem of a movie. So welcome, Kelly. Welcome, Judy. Thank you so much for taking part of this today. It's it's the first in our Ankler In Conversation page to screen series. Okay, I'm going to get to you, Judy, but I'm going to start with Kelly. Good. I'm going to just share a list of some of the other movies released in 2023. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Fast X, which is the 10th installment of Fast and Furious. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, the seventh installment of Mission Impossible. And then even Meg 2, The Trench, about the killer giant shark, I think. There was a sequel. So in this climate of franchises and sequels, you decide we're going to try to make a movie of a book published in 1970, which in the stakes of Hollywood today is a small story. So what in the world were you thinking? (laughs) 
That's a really good question. Well, first of all, I have to say there are just a few books that like got inside me in a way that just changed me. And Judy and this book was one of them. And I know so many people who feel that way about this book and who have experienced it through, you know, all different decades. I read it in 1990 and who related so deeply. So I think there's something so universal about it. That to me is what made it big. That's what makes this little story feel much larger than than it might seem on its surface. There's this whole theme of people writing Judy letters in her life that yeah. I will, I want to talk about later. But you decided you're going to write an email to Judy Bloom. So what did you do? She's a very good writer, let me say, and a very persuasive writer. All right, what did you say? Really, I just like poured my heart out, and which I think everybody does to you. You know, Judy own, owns a bookstore now, and I, I like I'm constantly hearing about people just come in and just cry when they when they meet you. And I think that was what I was doing as I was typing the email because you've just been such a north star for me since. I mean, really, since I was a little kid, you made me fall in love with reading. You made me want to be a writer. So to be here is just still surreal. So I really poured my heart out and said how much I wanted to adapt this book and how important I felt it was and how now felt like a time where we could actually do it and get the support to tell a female story, to tell a story about girls that I, that I didn't feel we could get even four or five years prior you know, so it felt like there was a moment. And never in a million years thought you would actually write back, to be honest. Okay. What, <laughs> she said something in that email that no one had ever said before. And no one had ever come to me with a credential, like The Edge of Seventeen. She said, oh, you know, by the way, I wrote and directed this movie, The Edge of Seventeen. And I'm like, What? I had just seen the movie, and I had loved the movie. No one had ever come with anything like that, a real movie that I had seen, that I had loved. And, and she said one other thing um, that really got to me. And my mentor is James L. Brooks. <laughs> and he will be with me every step of the way, as he was in and producing it <laughs> in The Edge of Seventeen. And I just said, you know, I thought to myself, this is this may be something. Because I have to tell you, you know, my son once said to me, my grown son, he said, you know, you wait till the women who read your books, who grew up with your books, are in charge in Hollywood. And you see what's going to happen then. And he was so right. That's incredible. Yes. Because before that, it had been Judy's Sweetheart Lunches with Guys. And it's like, I love you guys, but, you know, that was not, it, it just, they didn't have anything to say to me the way Kelly did. So you had, people had come to you to talk about a Margaret movie before. When I took Margaret off the table years ago. And why? It's 50 years. Right. Five, oh, years, a lot of years <laughs> since I wrote it. Why did you take it off the table? Well, I used to think not every book has to be a movie. And I was worried about kids, you know, I... I didn't see American movies showing kids mm -hmm. as real people. They were always cute. I was worried about that. But once Kelly and Jim came to meet me, I just felt this was the team. This was the team. It was the right time. And 
let's do it. So, and it really happened. I mean, <laughs> how often your book is optioned, but it never really happens. Right. This was no option. Right. This was just, let's do this. You and James L. Brooks, and I, my apologies to the audience, he, is, has a, he has a cold, he's sick, he could not make it today. But you and James, and I want to hear how James L. Brooks fell in love with the story of a sixth grader getting her period. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she made it. <laughs> but you you flew to Key West, where yeah. where Judy lives yes. today. Okay. Yep. Yeah. After I had reread the book as an adult and just and fallen in love with it all over again, and for different reasons as an adult, I called up Jim. I, I wrote Judy a letter, and she wrote back, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, there's, this might actually, there's maybe a chance. I, I called Jim, and I said, you, you have to read this book. And I don't know if you'll get it the way I do, you know, but you have to read it. And to his credit, he, he read it that day wow. and called me that night and was so moved by it. And so we had lunch maybe a day later, and then we were on a plane within a week. And I was like, like, oh my God, they're coming to Key West. What am I going to feed them? (laughs) Oh my God. And what did you feed them? What did you do? So there was a woman then in Key West, we called her caterer to the stars. This was a joke. You know, she helped us all do whatever we were doing. And I called Georgia and I said, she brought some things Tasty to the things. house. Okay. Tasty things. That's what I was most nervous about. <laughs> right? And then how soon after that meeting were you shooting? Oh, well, we, oh. we knew at that meeting. That, yeah. I mean, I knew that I wanted to work with them. Did you say yes in the room? I think I did. Yes. It, actually, it was, it was really George. George, Judy's husband. We were sort of standing around at the end. Jim and I were trying to feel Judy out and be like, so are we, did we pass the desk? <laughs> and, then, and then George was like, so we're doing this, right? And then we, sort, we looked at you and you were like, yeah. And we were like, oh my God. And off you went. And off we went, yeah. That's amazing. And then, and everything, <laughs> and everything went along, and then COVID hit. The movie was cast. Yes. Uh huh. And then COVID hit. Yep. And when you were casting, yes. I mean, this is your children on the cusp, oh, and you know, yes. you you've got girls who are not quite twelve, yes. and that's how you want to get them right. when yes. they're not quite twelve, and then COVID hits. And you postponed for a year? Oh, yeah. It was terrifying because oh. we, we found Abby Ryder Fortson, who plays Margaret. And then, I mean, we found her in March of 2020. Oh. And then like 12 days later, you know, she was just turning 12. And then we ju- it, months and months kept going by. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I mean, the whole movie is obviously her her praying for for boobs, you know? And I thought, oh, God, it's going to look like God has answered, you know? <laughs> and actually, when she got there and showed up in the dressing room, God ha- had answered. And so there is visual effects all over the film to try. Oh, yeah, I think I think we probably set a record for the most visual effects in a film just that, to flatten someone's chest. <laughs> you know, not everyone develops that early. No. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. Uh-huh. but yeah. Abby uh-huh. did. Yeah. That's amazing. And so yeah. then how did you find, the child actors are pretty amazing. Um, so or how did you do this? How did you, what were you looking for? It was really important to me, and I know to Judy, like what Judy was saying about kids who are sort of cutesy and polished, like that's, 
that's trained. Yeah, that that's really, really, really wanted real kids. And so we looked everywhere and and the kids we found were from everywhere for we're from all over the United States. And for most of them, this is their very first thing that they've ever done. And a lot of it was working with them improvising during the casting process, saying, "Okay, I know those are your lines, but throw them away and say it in your own words. And yeah, and the kids who could do that and who could just play and play in character, those were the kids that that we chose. Okay, so let's talk about how you two collaborated because you're a producer on the movie. It's Kelly's movie and Kelly made it happen and made it wonderful and made me feel that this movie is better than my book. I love it that much. I know it's ridiculous, but I do. I do. And it's, it's, it's Kelly's. I mean, Kelly and Jim were very inclusive. I've been involved with other movies before where I've been called the writer of the original material. And we don't want to hear what that person has to say, right? But in this case, I mean, Kelly and Jim made me feel welcome. They made me feel that anything I wanted to share with them was welcome. I was on the set for five weeks, two and then three weeks. I loved every second of it. (laughs) And I, I just felt I was deeply involved, but I wasn't adding things to the script. I wasn't saying to Kelly, do this, do that. I was... You felt good about it from day one. I did. Also, I just have to say, Judy, like, thanking us for involving her is so funny to me because we would be nuts not to involve you, your Judy Bloom. You know what I mean? Like, we would be insane. And and also just part of what I, I felt us geeking out about through the process were the little details. You know, I love how much you love details, you know? So we we would go nuts over little things. Like what? A recipe you know? book. Oh, yes. And I uh-huh. said, because I, you know, I was there in 1970 mm-hmm. <laughs> and long before. And I remember <laughs> that cooking with soups. Yes, yes. You know, yeah, the, the we used to rice. cook yes, with soups. A, and so they got, idea. but I didn't have that recipe book, but uh-huh. somebody right. found that wonderful recipe book. and. Mom opens it, Rachel opens it, and mm-mm, mm-mm, okay, yeah. dumps the mushroom soup yeah. on top of the <laughs> piece of meat that she's gonna cook. Yes, right. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. it's interesting. Movie is a period piece about periods, but it it doesn't hit you over the head with the periodness of it. I, I want to ask, what was your strategy in sort of having that be the setting without having it be the setting? Like, it, yes. there was not like a pulsating 1970 soundtrack. Like, Plus. yes, this was the biggest conversation that that we had with um, with the production designer, with the costume designer and Roth was really how do you make it feel both of the time, but also timeless? Because I think that's what the book does. I mean, when I read it in 1990, I had no idea it was written in 1970, I experienced it as completely contemporary. So you could do that more easily in a book, but in a movie, you're in a time and a place. So it was a real challenge and a needle to thread to figure out how to create sort of a universal nostalgia and always be accurate to the period, but not not where it hits you over the head or where something about it draws you back to your own childhood, whatever decade. That, that you grew up in. Right. And I, I, that's something I want to talk about a little more is like the universality of small stories. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, we live in this, in the in Hollywood, this idea of like 
four quadrant films and you need to appeal to men, women, young, old, and then you end up with these bloated $150 million productions. So I just can you just explain a little bit for both of you what you see as the simplicity of a small story? I mean, I think the more specific you are, the more universal you are, actually. I really think so much of it is in the details. I mean, again, I think that's so much of why this collaboration has been so wonderful is because because I think we're both equally obsessed about getting those little details right so that there's something that really just really makes it feel like life and makes it feel like makes it feel real. Right. And, and Judy, you have a cameo in the movie. Um, yes. You have a big role called, I think, neighbor number one, walking dog number one or something like that. <laughs> Choice of dogs was a real mistake on my part. <laughs> they said, here are two dogs. One was a medium-sized dog and one was a little tiny dog. And I got to choose. Yeah. And I chose the wrong dog. <laughs> little tiny dog. And it was a very, very hot day. And the little tiny dog was probably an elderly dog. <laughs> did not want to walk. <laughs> and the trainer went through all kinds of things to get that little dog to walk. And you and your husband represent just neighbors in New Jersey. Is that correct? Oh, well, yeah, I never saw anybody as dressed up walking a dog as Anne Roth loved dressing us up for that <laughs> role. Hat and shoes with tie-ups, and it was quite fun. Okay, let's spend a second on Anne Roth, because yes. for those of you who don't know, she is a legend. She's 91 years old, has won, I think, five Oscars, I believe. But she, Kelly, you tell us about Anne. Anne is just, she's the greatest of all time, and she's a spitfire. Like, she do not... not say, I am the oldest, you know, costume yeah. designer yeah. ever right. to win we'll, an we'll Oscar. We'll cut that out of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. But, you know, I mean, she does things that are so beautifully specific. Like, one of my favorite things that, that she did is I walked into the costume room and I saw Margaret in her outfit and I looked down at her socks and she had her in one dingy white sock and one clean white sock. Oh and I was like, that... That is adolescence. That's that age. Yeah. That's right, you know? And it's something that none of us, you'd never know in the movie, but we know, and, you know, and that feels right. It right. feels like it's in the right spirit. She worked on Barbie also. Is that correct? She was she in, she had a Barbie. cameo yeah. in oh, Barbie. Right. Yes. Uh -huh. Which is amazing. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Uh -huh. And she caused me tuts. Really? Oh, I love that. She was a naughty girl on the set. She would say, come with me. And I said, I can't. Can't go there. <laughs> she said, you're with me. You can do anything with me. Uh, love that. Okay, so Judy, I'm just blown away by how ahead of the times you always were in what you wrote. Um, you talked about sex before people talked about sex and girls. But they were doing it. Yeah, you are, you are, cor you are correct. It's um, not a new idea. And you also dove into so many social issues like racism, anti-Semitism. Um, Iggy's House, written in 1970, is about a white neighborhood's reaction when a black family moves in and Winnie, the protagonist, discovers that maybe even her parents aren't very welcoming. And then this, st in starring Sally J. Friedman as herself, set in 1947 Miami, the protagonist is a girl who is Jewish and she and her friend play concentration camp. 
I know. That's my most autobiographical Uh, book. What can I say? Did you play that as a child? I played everything. I played a lot. I had a big imagination. And Sally is a lot like the child that I was. Always had stories running around inside her head. Yeah. I mean, I love this detail from the book that when she and her friend are playing concentration camp, they decide no one has to play Hitler because he is on vacation. And it's just it's sort of... I think he's away on business. Oh, he's away on business, yeah. <laughs> and so poignant. And, and, and Margaret, she's estranged. Her mother is estranged from her Christian parents who could not accept her marriage to a Jewish man. So I wish your books could solve the world. They haven't. Um, but can you tell me, what is the power for children to read these stories, when, particularly in these times today? I can't answer that. You know, when I wrote these books, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just, I, I, I didn't have a plan. I wasn't trying to do anything except tell a good and an honest story. And I was young from my limited experiences and, and viewpoint. So all these letters and thousands and thousands of letters that have been written to Judy through her career are now housed at Yale in the archives. And what kind of response did you get from telling those kinds of stories? Amazing responses from kids, you know, boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes, and some of them very serious, some of them very serious responses. And you wrote some of those kids back. I wrote a, yes, (laughs) yes. I still correspond with some of them. It's amazing. If, If you haven't seen the Judy Bloom documentary, Judy Bloom Forever, there are two adults who you corresponded with for decades. And like one of them, it's just the stories are incredible. One of them is a girl who wrote you about her brother's suicide. And then she later revealed to Judy that the brother had been sexually molesting her. For and seven years. For seven years. And and you helped her. You got, you helped her. I mean, she gives you much She credit. She feels that. You know, I was there to be supportive. Right. And then Judy also at another moment from the documentary, is her name? The one you went to her graduation. Lori Kim. Lori Kim. Uh, Lori that... Kim is such a wonderful character. Uh, yeah. But she, I think she started writing you when she was nine, I believe. She was nine, and she wrote in the style of Louisa May Alcott. <laughs> and she said, I quake in my boots each time a boy approaches the B shelf in the library, lest he see something he should not, <laughs> which was my books. <laughs> she was. And she wrote in little teeny, teeny, teeny handwriting on, you know, paper thin paper. Sometimes she lived in America. Sometimes she was in Seoul. And yes, we still, you know, we had dinner with them, with her two teenage daughters. Oh, my God. Not that long ago. She wrote you when she was having a hard time with your parents. And you came, you and George came to her graduation at Bryn Mawr. Is that correct? We went to something called, mm, what was it called, George? Garden party. Garden party day. The day before, the day before graduation. Because she wrote, she was a little manipulative. And she wrote, she said, I, uh, my parents are not going to be able to come from Korea and get there for garden party. And, you know, would you like to come? And we happened to be in New York then. And so we went to Bryn Mawr. I got out my dress, my one dress, like I, this is good for a garden party. I didn't know what I was going to. And it was wonderful. Her parents, of course, were there. (laughs) And George said, 
don't give her that Maplethorpe book in front of her parents. <laughs> that's what she wanted. So I want to get into some of the, is it activism that you do today? You are like, you are on the front line, a real hero on, on this front. Okay, yeah, Politico, I think it was Politico wrote this about you. Bloom's books matter because they give teens and preteens the kind of information that leaves adults unsettled. And because their books consume privately at one's own pace on one's own terms. It's a secret conversation that feels like independence. I love that. I, I never saw that. I love that. So what, is that, what does that mean? Tell me, explain what that means if you're a girl. Well, if you're anybody. Anybody, think, if you're anybody. You know, I, but books are private, mm -hmm. right? Books are between the reader and the author. I, you know, that's what I love about books. I love movies too. You know I love movies. <laughs> I do. But a reading experience with a book, you know, just you and the book. Right. I never intended for my books to be used in school or taught in school. I just meant for them to be for the kids. Yes. So there are many people who are interested in, who might not be as familiar with how you got started. And you didn't start till you were married. I think I was really young. So I used to tell kids, you know, when, when did you start writing? And I would say, I was really young. I was in my late 20s. Today, that's a joke, right. you know, because people are publishing books when they're 12. Right. But yeah, I was married early. I had two kids by the time I was 25. And very soon after, I started writing. Well, you probably don't think of yourself as a lesson in resilience, but I think you are. And I want to talk about this. You got many rejections. You started to send things out. You got Everybody gets. I mean, you're supposed to get rejections. Okay, but you're Judy Bloom, So I, I just want to point out, someone, I, I, was it a male executive, wrote to you, so get a fresh hanky out and sit back for your first lesson. Oh, he was such a... <laughs> he he was not an executive. He was someone that my husband's friend knew. You know how you know you must know somebody. Who do we know? Who do we know? And he was writing picture books, successful picture books for children. And so I can't remember what manuscript I sent. But he told you what you need to do. I think it would, it would be called mansplaining today. <laughs> he didn't tell me how to, what to do. I mean, aside from get out your hanky and cry. Yeah. And basically, you have no talent. And that, well, but he helped give me that determination. Right. So what did you do? You, you got that letter and you're, you feel like... I remember I was sick and I was in bed and I was crying. Oh, yes, get out your hanky and cry. Yes, I did. But all the time I was thinking, you asshole. I'm going to show you. And maybe I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it. And you did. I just kept learning. I kept writing. I mean, that's how I learned. But you also found a publisher who was looking for what you wanted to do, a new publisher. Yeah, but it correct? wasn't what that guy saw. What that guy saw, I have to say, on his behalf, what he saw was probably pretty bad stuff. But, you know, he should have seen something good anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, because I was writing rhyming picture books right. that were not brilliant. Okay. And it was once I started to write novels, you know, small novels, that everything changed. 
So your first advance for a novel was $350. That was a picture book. That was a picture book. It was a picture book. Yeah, that's the one in the middle is the green kangaroo. And you bought a typewriter, an electric typewriter. I used my college electric typewriter in the beginning. And then, yes, and then I guess I... treated yourself. I updated, right. And then my then husband, who was a lawyer and had a law firm, um, brought home a refurbished IBM Selectric. Remember them? Anybody remember them? Yes. The big yes. thing, thing. I kept one of those in my closet for years. And I would open the, I think it was red. And I bought that one myself. And I would open the door and say, I still love you. <laughs> and though I'm using a computer, I'm still, you're still my first love. <laughs> you know, you don't need a machine. I write, I get, always got all my best ideas. I don't know how mm-hmm. you do it with paper and pencil. Do you use? Something for me, my my brain clicks in when I have my hands on a keyboard. But I think it's probably maybe because I started that way. Yeah. But I want to ask you, this was this really, it made me angry at your first husband in the documentary because you said he never read. You don't think he read a single thing you wrote. And then you talk about trying to find, you thought maybe you were never going to find a life partner. Oh, well, yes, I did keep trying. (laughs) But George and I are 44 years together. I found my life. Oh, oh, that's like, you know, luck. Yeah. Timing. Right. Right. Just like writing. There is luck involved. There is timing involved. But there's a lesson. Maybe I don't want to jump to a conclusion, but a lesson in finding those who support you in your life? Yes, hopefully, <laughs> or, or not. <laughs> What's the lesson? The lesson, I don't, like, don't, don't waste time with people who don't value you or don't value what you do. Oh, well, I didn't know that for a long time. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you had this line, you've said this line also, that you went from being your, your mother's little girl to then being someone's wife. Well, I did. I mean, we did that then. You know, I was married in 1959. I was a college student. Yeah. I was a junior in college. What a crazy thing. Yeah. You know, but we did, we did that. I wasn't the only one. I mean, right. it was like if you graduated from college and you weren't engaged, where were you ever going to meet anyone? Right. <laughs> so silly. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and you... You were living in the suburbs, and you also said once you went to a party and you said, and you were working at the time as a writer, and you said, I don't think these other women are wishing me well. <laughs> well, that was sad. Yeah. I mean, it was, again, it was a time when it was before women's, we started supporting each other in the women's movement. You know, it was still mm-hmm. a competitive time, yeah. and um, it was more like, you know, she thinks she can write. She thinks she can do this. What, what is she thinking? Right. Was the attitude. Right. Like. Right. Get back where you I'm belong. still quite friendly with one woman who lived on that cul-de-sac. Wow. But we've never gone back to talk about that. I wow. should talk about that with her. Right. I don't think she was ever one who didn't wish me well. Good. So, Kelly, you, when you were doing your previous movie, you went and spent time with high schoolers to sort of get the vibe, what's going on. And I want to ask you, and both of you really, what's happening with our teenage girls today? Because you've seen the really depressing data around, um, according to the CDC, three in five 
U.S. girls feel persistently sad or hopeless, and that is double that of boys. What could you see? Could you, is there, do you have any insights into that from spending time making movies about this top, about girls? I think it's because it's, it's, it's changed even since you made Edge of Seventeen. Yeah. Because that would have been how many years ago? Mm -hmm. Five? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 2016. So, yeah. 2016. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't think social media is helping anybody with their mental health. I constantly think about how tough it would be to grow up with that, where your life is constantly a fishbowl and you can look and see what everybody else is doing and feel like their life is better than yours. You know, I think that's the big lie you tell yourself in adolescence is like, I'm the only one who's screwed up and everybody else has it figured out. And I think social media especially just perpetuates that exponentially. I mean, it's always been bad, mm -hmm. I think. Yes, but, yeah. but, you know, I came of age in the 50s mm -hmm. and it was tough, but social media, yeah. yeah. I thought about this question. I was thinking, Judy, what would Nancy, who's sort of the ringleader of the clique, if Nancy had social media, today. What would Nancy be doing? <laughs> Who knows what Nancy would be doing, Nancy. I mean, yeah, Nancy's, Nancy's a bit of a bully, but she's nowhere near, you know, the mean girl, mean girl. Yes, that, that, was, a, that was a big thing that, that we talked about, is like even the mean girl, like all of that behavior is rooted in some pain or insecurity. Yes. You know what I mean? And it, so it was important to humanize her. There's, I mean, there's a moment toward the end of the film at the party, at the party, and the outdoor party, the, right. the school, yes. oh, okay. school, yeah. the end of school, they're having a party yeah. outdoors. And um, Nancy, she's a wonderful, wonderful actor. And she looks over and she, she sees that she's lost control. Yes. Of, yes. of Margaret and of oh, who else is dancing? And, and Janie, Laura, Margaret yes. and Janie. She has lost control. And even then, Gretchen. Gretchen, yep. mm -hmm. Gretchen I have to remember. <laughs> I named them a long time ago. Um, even Gretchen leaves her and they go and dance with Laura, who until then, they have really made her life miserable. Mm -hmm. And you see Nancy's face. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. that moment that you capture her face. It's just like, I don't understand. Why are you doing this? But the empathy of that moment is that you aren't rooting for Nancy to suffer. Yes. You feel incredible, like pain for her, yes. right? Yeah. You see, she's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So Judy, you have said before that a book cannot harm a child, which I think many. I hope that's true. I think it's true. But we are in a political climate right now where lots of our country would disagree with that statement. And I'm just going to talk about some of the things that have gone on recently. There was a something called the Parents' Bill of Rights that passed in the U.S. House this spring that reminds parents they can inspect books in school libraries. Idaho debated a bill that would subject librarians to penalties for featuring certain kinds of books. Uh, the Florida House of Representatives, your state, pa <laughs> um, passed a bill that would bar schools from discussing menstruation until middle school, which is after many children, many girls have gotten their periods. I always say, how are they going to enforce that law? They're going to go to kids at a bus stop? 
I know. And say, you're in jail. You're yeah. talking about getting your period. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe it's going to come to that. Yeah. And uh, Forever was one of 80 books banned from Florida's Martin County school system. And that list included Handmaid's Tale, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, and a ton of books around gender and LGBTQ storylines. 2022 was a record year for book bans, which I feel is going to be exceeded by 2023. So let's go back to when it all started yes. really big time. And that was 1980. And that was right after the election of Ronald Reagan. For some reason, the censors felt it's our turn now. And they crawled out of the woodwork overnight. So we thought the 80s was bad. We had um, Meese as the attorney general. I mean, we had so much going on. And I did for a while feel terribly alone and sad until I found, you know, the National Coalition Against Censorship. And I like to take action when things happen, no matter what. And so I now had an organization that I could work with. Okay, that was the 80s. If we thought the 80s were bad, next to nothing compared to today. Because the difference is, then it was a parent coming into school, waving a book, you know, I want this book taken out of the library. And then librarians and schools got their policies in place. And so if a parent came in waving a book, they knew what to do. You know, we're going we're going to have a discussion on this book and we will see what happens. Now cut to today. And it is not, it's coming from the government. That's what's so scary. It's coming from state legislators. And they are, yes, they are threatening the livelihoods of teachers and librarians. Pensions are at stake. I've had a lot of people come into the bookstore, you know, from different parts of the country and different parts of Florida. And we used to say, we live in Key West. We don't live in Florida. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, we do have the same governor. And it's very, very bad. And their pensions, they can be fired, and their pensions can be taken away from them. And yes, there is some law that says they can go to jail for a felony or a misdemeanor or something. I don't know. I don't think that's happened yet. I don't know that that would ever happen. But they were told over the summer, this is in Florida, to go into your libraries, your school libraries, and go through every book and remove any book that isn't age appropriate. Mm. What does that mean? Mm. You know, I was reading adult books when I was 12. I was reading from my parents' bookshelves, and that was good. And my very anxious mother never was anxious over what I was reading mm. because she loved to read. Mm. I could take any book from anywhere and read it. You know, that was a good thing. Judy is reading. That's good. But now it's books are bad and books are dangerous. And if you read this book, any book that has to do with LBGTQ, yes, <laughs> plus you're going to turn into that right. kind of person. And right. we can't. Anything, and racism, right. anything about race very, very scary stuff. And so I think, you know, I urge everybody to take a stand. You know, if you love to read, if you love books, if you want kids 
to be able to read and learn. They, they don't want kids to learn because learning is dangerous. Asking questions, sorry, well, well, what can, is dangerous. Not everyone in this room is Judy Bloom. What can, what can people do? Well, you can speak out. You can join any of the great organizations, national organizations or and local organizations. I just met in New York with the head of Penn and the new head of National Coalition Against Censorship because I, I need to know, you know, what's going on. They have wonderful programs. And I know that there are two women in Florida, citizens, regular women. They had kids and they just wanted their kids to be able to read. And they started their own group. And, you know, they're working with Penn. They're working with the NCAC. Everybody wants to work with them. They're terrific. And they are from one of those counties that... So I'm curious, why books when there's a whole internet that shows you the worst things? (laughs) As we saw this week with videos out of the Middle East. Why books? Why books? Because they can. Right. Because they want to control. It's really all about control. Mm -hmm. And and because if, if, if you feel so out of control of your kids and you want to be in control, you feel, I guess, that this is a way to do it, take away the books. I mean, it's 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 crazy, right? right? And the internet is infinite. But they can't do anything about that. They can take it away from their kids, maybe. You once said that you're not going to debate the zealots. I can't. Right. There's no point. There isn't any point. I tried once or twice years ago, but, you know, you learn pretty quick. You had a very funny line when you went on Crossfire. Do you recall this? Oh, do I recall being on Crossfire with Pat Buchanan? (laughs) Yes. And he was saying, like, why do you care about masturbation so much? And and No, I said to him, Mr. Buchanan, are you hung up on masturbation or what? (laughs) And then that became a big headline in the Washington Post that weekend. Mr. Buchanan, are you hung up on masturbation? (laughs) I mean, he was, you can see it in the documentary. I mean, he was badgering me, badgering me, badgering. I didn't even know this show. I never should have gone on this show. My son said, when they called me at the last minute, and my son said, that's a really interesting show. You should do that show. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's from the left and it's from the right, but the guy on the left never jumped in no. to help save me. <laughs> he just left me with Pat Buchanan. And when there was a break, I said the, the camera crew was all young, young guys. And I said, this isn't real, is it? This is like some... Satire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they said, it's real. Well, you held your own. How about that? I was glad I spoke up to him. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's fantastic. All right, so Kelly and Judy, are we going to see more books from you? Do you plan to publish? No. Never? <laughs> Come on. No, 50 years is enough. <laughs> My last book, In the Unlikely Event, a book that's very dear to me and I love very much. That was five years to be locked up and writing it. So I'm 85. I don't want to be locked up. I was very lucky when I said, that's it. I'm done. I've said what I want to say. I've written the books I want to write. And then, boom, the fairy godmother, you know, came down and said, here's a bookstore. Don't you want to open a bookstore? 
And it was like, yes. And so George and I founded, we needed a bookstore in Key West, basically. And we, we tried to get wonderful Mitch Kaplan from Miami to come down and open a books and books. Wow. And he, he couldn't do it. He said, if you and George find a way. And so we're a nonprofit, wonderful, wonderful bookstore. And are you in there most days? Yeah, I've been away three months now. It's the longest I've ever been away from the baby. And the interesting thing is the baby is doing very well without us. (laughs) (laughs) And George says, that was always the idea, Judy, to get, you know, a staff that's so good that we can be away and and everything goes well. I mean, this is quiet time in Key West, but it's still doing doing well. Wow. Doing well. But when I'm in town, am I there working? Yes. At least three days a week. And are there people who come in who don't know your Judy Bloom? It's getting hard. I like to dust and and put my books out and, you know, do displays and things. And it's it's getting hard. And by mid-July when we left, it had been known being recognized, it had taken some of the fun out of it I for see. me. Okay. We do have Cardboard Judy who's there. <laughs> <laughs> George and my daughters, for my 85th birthday, they created Cardboard Judy. She's life-size. And so <laughs> she's there, and she holds up signs um, oh. for Bound Books Week. Amazing. She wears beads when it's appropriate, <laughs> um, love beads that we throw around. So she's there. Amazing. Um, and Kelly, what's your next project? I'm in a writing period right okay. now. So yeah. So is just it like about hunkered down. Girls? It, it is. It's, a, it's mother, daughter. It's family. It's, yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm, I'm excited for the announcement whenever you're ready. And I know that can be short time or long time yeah. with, with writing. You need, I, I always think that you need not to talk about what you're writing, because if you talk about it a lot, then you don't need to write it. But Kelly totally. knows what to do. Yeah. <laughs> She's a great writer. She's a really great and now that you've heard this conversation, you should all go rewatch Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, because you'll see all the nuance and all the artistry that went into what they just talked about. So kudos to Kelly. I will be forever grateful to Kelly for doing this. Oh, yes. my God. You know that. I, you know I that. I will be forever grateful no, that no. you said yes and, yes. That, you, and that you are you. <laughs> okay. Our love fest. (laughs) Gratitude. Amazing. Okay. So I want to close out with a quote that I think encompasses what this movie is. And it's from Richard Rushfield, who's one of the columnists for The Ankler. And he writes, uh, he wrote just this week, which seems appropriate to now. More and more of what we put out seems factory made. It's humanity, the humanity of the storytelling that's been eclipsed. And if humanity is going to survive, it needs storytellers to show us why this thing called the human experience still means something. So thank you to you both for putting out something that I think really lives that. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly Freeman Craig. Thank you, Judy Bloom. Oh my God. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, thank you to all of you for joining us today uh, for our very first The Ankler in Conversation page to screen.